Check out my new show, Nicola Talent Presents Getting Away With Murder, live at Liberty Hall on September 20th. Brought to you by MCD. Tickets on sale at ticketmaster.ie. The children were abducted from one location, driven many hundreds of miles to a different location and left there. From a jury's perspective, it's difficult because he may well have been in the area at the time and the defence argued that, yes, he was he was a convicted paedophile and he had admitted to the abduction of the little girl in Stowe. But did that make him a murderer? I'm Nicola Talent and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Convicted child killer Robert Black was caught when a curious postman turned his head to look at the unfamiliar van as it passed on his street one day and in those seconds saw a child's feet disappear into the back. The sliding doors moment meant the end of the road for Black, but the start of a massive police investigation to link him to some of the most notorious child murders and abductions of the previous decades. Black pleaded guilty to kidnap and was later convicted of five murders and one attempted abduction. But a delve into his past links him to many more and unravels a story of true evil. Today, I'm talking to journalist Zoe Apostolides, whose book, End of Innocence, focuses on the unsolved cases that bear all the hallmarks of Black's dark heart. She tells me of the early life and forgotten crimes of Robert Black and describes how he moonlighted as a willing delivery driver while staking out victims. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Zoe, Robert Black has, you know, undoubtedly one of the most dangerous, prolific child killers or certainly suspected child killers of the last century. And a very complex story, which between us, we're going to try and keep as simple as possible, shall we say, for the listeners, because we have to jump around a lot with his story. But I'm going to start with his arrest in the 1990s. And in starting there, we're going to go back as far as the 1960s, when children, teenagers are abducted, uh, murdered and that these cases remain unsolved. But start me with what happens when he's arrested on the same day someone witnesses the kidnap of a young girl. Yeah, absolutely. So it's pretty likely that if Robert Black hadn't been apprehended on this day in um, in July 1990, he most likely wouldn't have been caught at all or not for quite some time. So he was arrested in Stowe, which is a tiny village south of Edinburgh, close to the border between Scotland and England. Tiny population, just 800 people. And on that particular day, a retired postmaster was mowing his lawn. A 53-year-old guy was just happily minding his own business when he saw the six-year-old neighbour of uh, the local constable, as it happened, who walked past him and smiled. And at that moment, he noticed that there was a, a van idling across the street Uh, He hadn't seen the van before, but that wasn't particularly unusual, even in such a small community. There were just 800 people living there, but it was summer and there was a festival nearby. So he didn't pay it too much attention until he saw the feet of that six-year-old girl literally being lifted up out of of the, you know, into the air, out from the pavement 
and placed in the van, at which point the van sped off. So this postmaster, thinking very quickly, noted down the number plate, watched as this car tore off up the up the road and went and got the constable. So the police descended, waited, were taking down all of the notes from, from the postmaster. The constable's obviously devastated. And at that moment, the van comes back along the street for reasons that we don't know, but, but he comes back. The postmaster says, that's him, that's the guy. They stop the van and inside they find the alive but unconscious six-year-old in the back of the van in a sleeping bag so um that at that point he's he's arrested now the the constable happens to have been reading the police gazette which is circulated that time every week uh some years before there'd been an, a police sketch artist had done a a drawing of a suspect in another case in scotland and he recognized the guy that had just abducted mm. his daughter so at that point the pieces very slowly start to fit together but this is sort of the beginning of the end for Robert Black. It's just incredible it's like a sliding doors moment a second when the right person is looking in the right direction and sees that and how quickly that abduction happened and thankfully that child was rescued and survived but others may not have been so lucky. Now on the 10th of August there was a one day trial for the kidnapping. He pleaded guilty. He being Robert Black pleaded guilty and he gets life imprisonment. He's in custody finally. So then really the real work, the real investigation work begins. And, um, you know, like a lot of these sort of cold cases, detectives have to work backwards rather than forwards. So what happens next? And give us a little bit of background as well into who Robert Black was, this unknown van driver. So first of all, I'll start with with the joint investigation, which had been set up after the abduction and murder of Caroline Hogg, which was in 1983 in Portobello. And this was the police sketch artist drawing that had, in fact, alerted them to the fact that this may be the same man. At the time, uh, a superintendent police chief called Hector Clark was, was put in charge of two investigations, one being Caroline Hogg and the other being the disappearance and murder of Susan Maxwell, who was another child that that had gone missing in in 1982. And he was placed in charge of both of these crimes because they were particularly unusual. So both children were abducted, driven many miles from home and left, um, unfortunately murdered, as I say, many miles from home. They believed that there was a sexual motive to both of these crimes. And instead of having four separate police forces working independently of each other, they decided to make one man responsible for for both cases. And in both cases, they were using Holmes for the first time, or at least, you know, digital electronic cataloguing. So this was how they started to fit together the pieces based on what had happened in in Stowe. Now, Mm. Robert Black, by that point, had been working as a delivery driver for a company called Poster Dispatch and Storage, He'd been working for them since 1976 and they began the process of piecing together his movements over what appeared to be many, many years of travelling. Robert Black, he had been very prepared to go wherever the company needed him to go. He was actually quite popular at the company as a result of his willingness to take on shifts that other people didn't want to, uh, to often stay overnight in, in places that were very far from his base in London. And um, essentially what the police had to start to do was try and place him at the scenes of the abductions and later at the sites where the children's bodies were left. 
And they did that through various oil companies' receipts and places that accepted these sorts of slips instead of cash when people were refueling. So it was a lot of cross-referencing of dates and times and locations, uh, not helped by the fact that there was no AMPR, there was no um, one van that Black was using. Yeah. Huge, huge policing challenge that really. And, you know, going back, of course, not only was there no NPR, there probably was no, well, not very much CCTV or anything. If there had been any, even back then in the in the 80s, it would have been destroyed. You're talking Caroline Hogg, five-year-old, youngest known victim, and she was playing outside her home. Was it the same scenario with her that she just disappeared within seconds, no trace? Yeah, literally within seconds. She had asked for a few more minutes of playtime. She was told she could go no further than her normal sort of playground area. She did that day go into the local fun park, which was adjacent to a car park. So she was seen riding the carousel for which she'd had no money. So they assumed that someone had paid for her. And in fact, witnesses said that they'd seen her with a sort of scruffy looking dark haired man with glasses. But that was the last time she was seen. So it was assumed she'd been taken from that location in a car. And Susan Maxwell was only 11 when a year previously she was playing tennis and was on her way home and disappeared into thin air. Yeah, absolutely. And her body was found sort of 250 miles away in the Midlands. She was just 11 when she'd gone missing. Um, and those cases were immediately connected just because they were so so completely unusual. There were too many points of similarity. Mm. And this was something that later the prosecution were able to use. So at the same time as investigating this and trying to come up with the evidence to link them to these two child murders, um, which no doubt took a long time, um, what were they discovering about Robert Black's background? I mean, I'm talking right back to his childhood. So Robert Black was very well known to authorities, at least in Scotland. He'd been in and out of the system since birth. So he was born in 1947 in Grangemouth, which is about 25 miles west of, of Edinburgh. He was born to a woman called Jessie Hunter Black. She lived in a little cottage within the gates of, of the docks there at Grangemouth. She was unmarried. She didn't list uh, a father's name on the birth certificate. And pretty much immediately, probably due to the stigma of having this child out of wedlock, she gave him up for adoption and she went immediately to Australia where she lived and, and died. So uh, Robert Black was put into foster care with a couple of very experienced foster carers called Jack and Margaret uh-huh. Tulip. And um, by all accounts, it was fairly stable. I mean, probably quite different methods of, of discipline to that which parents might use nowadays. But um Robert Black was a known bedwetter from an early age. He was quite regularly beaten by his foster mother who died um, when he was 11, essentially. So he didn't have very many friends at school. He was mercilessly teased. um, And uh, he committed his first sexual assault on a young girl when he was just 11 himself. Um, Mm -hmm. Once his foster parents had both died, he was moved out of care, placed into um, like a a mixed-sex kids facility like a children's home near Falkirk um, and moved around after a string of he'd expose himself and then be moved on and then uh, police would be alerted again once he'd he'd committed another crime right up to the age of of 15 um, when he's sent to Borstal so Mm. quite a string of red flags there but at 21 he moves out of Scotland completely goes to London very anonymous moves to King's Cross then to Stoke Newington and settles there. He lives there pretty much until he's arrested 
that's his base. There's some sort of um, evidence or, uh, you know, suggestion that he was somebody who had a fascination with females, that he believed he should have been born a female. Was that a psychological report that was done on him at one point or where does that come from? Yes, he he said to his prison psychologist, a man named Ray Wire, that he'd been fascinated with um, women and girls from a very young age, that he used to lie on the ground and look up at the look up the skirts of women at local dances. And um, he himself, yes, did believe that he ought to have been born female. At least that's what he told prison psychologists. So to have committed that first assault, as I say, on another young girl at the age of 11 um, was was a fairly major indication that um, that he was he was troubled, that he needed to be in a in a facility probably that could have coped with this and understood it rather than um, sort of moving him around constantly in those very early years um, and just filing police reports, essentially. Nowadays, if a 21-year-old took a seven-year-old girl to an air raid shelter and held her by the throat until she lost consciousness and then sexually molested her, they would be very severely handled and monitored going forward. But of course, we're talking 1963 and there was no sex offenders register? No. Um, what, what sort of prison term did he get and serve? So after that particular incident, he was um, he was sent to the Borstal originally um and uh he was he was basically just known to police he had he had this record um and he was i think placed in prison at that point for about 6 months so released and moved on pretty much immediately after that and he's obviously somebody already showing an ability to live independently anywhere and to move from place to place and he doesn't need to set down roots or um have a, have a family or whatever so w- what happens then as the 60s continue we're into 1966 he's caught again molesting a young child yes exactly so 1966 he's caught again quite a lot of these early cases um, before we come into the 80s it's clear that most of the families when he's sort of staying with with people as a tenant um, they are aware of what's been going on in their house, mm. often with their children, but for one reason or another, they simply don't want to report it. So while on occasion he was reported to the police, it was more often than not that parents didn't want to put their children through the trauma of of reporting what, what had happened. So um, there, were, there were quite a number of occasions that he later reported in prison, um, probably more than we'll ever know. But um, yeah, the majority of them, the majority of them probably probably went under the net. He himself also suffered sexual abuse. He mentioned that while he was at, at grammar school, the same thing had, had happened to him. Um, but yeah, these these child welfare agencies that were sort of there ostensibly at the time didn't didn't go into it too much. Didn't seem to mm. have followed it up. And at the same time, we can see the, you know, these assaults are ramping up. And, uh, you know, I'm, I imagine that the more he gets away with, the more empowered he becomes as a predator. Um, in 1969, and, and this case isn't investigated until well after the, um, the Susan Maxwell and Caroline Hogg uh, cases are concluded, essentially, are certainly ready for court. But... There is the kidnap and murder of a young girl called April Fab. Um, I think he remains a suspect in that case, although he's never been convicted of it. Is that right? But to try and keep the timeline uh, uh, as you have very detailed 
put together in your book if we talk about April Fab next, because that's 1969. Yes, of course. So the Child Murder Bureau was actually set up in 1986, and this was intended to look at any unsolved cases of, of child abduction and murder, but it only went from 1973. So this was from 1973 to what was then the present day, 86. Now, April Fab uh, did disappear in 1969, she lived with her parents in a tiny hamlet in um, in Norfolk. And she had gone out on this particular day in April 1969 to deliver some cigarettes to her brother-in-law for his birthday. She was herself two weeks from turning 14. So she sets off on her bike. Um, it's only an, a mile to the village of Rawton, which is where her sister lives. A farmer saw her on the way, two school friends saw her, and 15 minutes later... Her blue and white bike is seen lying in a field by the road. A local man picks it up and takes it to the police station. Um, It's still got the money inside that she carried with her, still got the cigarettes, so robbery, clearly not a motive, but April has gone. Um, Huge search undertaken at the time, nothing found, very unusual, no evidence whatsoever, no dent on the bike, nothing to suggest there'd been an accident. Um, and uh, many clairvoyants in this case were actually drafted in to to try and help police. Nothing came of that. Years later, even in the 90s, they used thermal imaging cameras to try and see what could be discovered. They excavated a local well, but um, nothing was discovered or has ever been discovered. Um, Both her parents have, have since sadly died. It was seen to be a pretty opportunistic crime. April was out uh, on a sort of atypical visit. This wasn't a routine that she had at that time of day. It seemed as though she'd literally disappeared into thin air. And I mean, again, similar MO then if he if he was involved, well, he does remain a suspect. So that brings us through the 1970s. I think while he had moved around a lot in 72, he moved into a home with new landlords and he remained there until his arrest in 1990 when that postman saw the little girl's feet going into the back of the van. But so the 70s, um, there is a number of unsolved child murders or disappearances that he is suspected of. And all the time he's working as this sort of delivery driver. He's traveling across England. He's traveling into Ireland, Northern Ireland and up around the border counties. What sort of cases happen there in the 70s that that may have he may have been linked to. Sure, yeah. So again, you wouldn't necessarily have even thought to to link these crimes because they were so far flung geographically. But the the, the method um, and the fact that nothing was discovered at the time um, sort of linked them together. So the first one that I've looked into here was was that of Christine Markham, who disappeared in May 1973. She was um, the second youngest child of um, a single mother who worked in a nearby factory. She did occasionally play truant from school, but sort of just wandered around the local town and then came home, watched TV and sort of chilled out. On this particular day, she did plan to play truant and um, she left home and wandered off once her older siblings had had caught the bus and was never seen again. Um, she was very small for her age, just three foot ten inches. And on that particular night that she went missing on sort of late May in, in 1973, there was a massive rainstorm and all of the rivers swelled. And for about two weeks, the search was very much focused on on recovering her in a body of water. 
nothing was ever discovered. Um, and the search was scaled back over the course of that summer. So um, that case interested me particularly because there's been virtually nothing written about it. And again, you know, she, as I say, she was a regular truant. She was a so-called troubled child and she came from a very deprived area. So that was that was one thing that interested me when you compare them to compare the reporting of this case to something like April Fabs or later on, yeah. you know, some of the other cases. But um, we then come to Ireland in 1977. So this is the case of, um, of Mary Boyle, a very famous case by comparison. Um, and um, Mary had been playing at her grandparents' farm. She uh, followed her uncle to deliver a, a ladder to their neighbours who lived just sort of 800 metres away, turned back and was never seen again. No evidence of her whatsoever. No ribbon from her hair, no crisp packet, no boot, nothing. Um, and uh, yeah, she uh, she's she's never been found since. Uh, mm. The final one, and the one that the book sort of focuses most on, is uh, that of Jeanette Tate, who disappeared in, in August 1978. She was uh, 13 and lived with her dad, her stepmom, and her stepsister. She was on a paper round at the time, so this is uh, another case that features a bike. She was on her paper round, 2.30pm, goes out, starts delivering papers, runs into a couple of school friends, they have a quick chat. She continues up the hill on her bike, and literally within sort of mere minutes, the two school friends come up the hill to find the bike, that famous picture on the road, on its side, back wheel still spinning, papers strewn everywhere and no money taken again, even though she had a fair bit on her. Um, so these were the sort of, these were the the, the main cases. And, and I just think it's particularly fascinating that in all of them, there was no evidence of any accident. There was no evidence that uh, the bikes had been hit. There was, I mean, it's virtually impossible. And it also sheds light on just the sort of the police techniques at the time and what they were actually able to do to try and solve these murders. And sadly, when you, you say that about Christine Markham, she was only nine, the, the little girl who disappeared in Scunthorpe. Um, you know, we're, again, we're talking about a different era. It's the 70s. You, you'd just imagine that the disappearance of a child of that age would cause absolute outrage and fear and that it would be well reported. Did you feel it wasn't because she was from a more underprivileged place and maybe didn't have as many families shouting for her? I think mm. it's fascinating to look into just the kind of the amount of media coverage when you've got something, when you've got a, a victim that seems somehow ideal, by which we mean sort of someone who's kind of educated, middle class usually. Um, the, the, compare this to the sort of so-called typical victim who's usually sort of preteen, male, so-called troubled, comes from a so-called broken home. This definitely represented one of those scenarios where uh, a missing child from a deprived northern area just doesn't get the same the same um, coverage as a, a middle class girl from Norfolk or from Devon. And it's something we should, you know, learn from still, because sometimes you can see cases when women in particular are murdered, that there is more outrage if they are exactly as you describe, you know, middle class and seemingly perfect and maybe cases of women in, in um, from more less privileged backgrounds don't get the same outcry from the public. Um, interestingly, while obviously the disappearances can be clearly linked from the modus operandum of them, how they, you know, there was no, there was no sign of them again and they were 
plucked really from a roadside in unusual areas. Um, the investigations have also found that in all three cases, Robert Black was in the areas at the times of their disappearance. Yes, he was absolutely found to have been. And that was quite interesting from a from a jury's perspective. It's difficult because he may well have been in the area at the time. And the defence argued that, yes, he was he was a convicted paedophile and he had admitted to the abduction of the little girl in Stowe. But did that make him a murderer? That was what they were sort of asking the jury to, to examine. Is this all circumstantial? Um, can can we convict him of, of these crimes, A, without a body, and B, just because he happened to be there on the day? There's nothing else to suggest that he was involved. And um, police sketch artists, I mean, that's that's one thing. It's not concrete evidence by any by any stretch. So... They had a really tough time. I think it was something like 20 tonnes of material evidence was collected and presented during the course of the prosecution. But there was nothing. I mean, it's it, it's incredible nowadays because you just imagine the amount of DNA evidence that could be taken from something like Jeanette's bike, April's bike. Um, it just wasn't available then. And what's really important to remember is that these teams of police who were trying their absolute best, they... Um, that they they had not encountered crimes like this, particularly in a place like like Devon. They the Met had something like 120 homicides in the year that Jeanette Tate went missing. Devon had six, so they weren't used to covering this this particular sort of crime. So they had a, a really hard task once um, the prosecution got down to to trying to prove that it was black. But ultimately, the jury found that there was enough to suggest, in similarity terms, that he was probably responsible, and they did convict him. The um, interesting point you make about the, you know, the murders being unusual and police not having, you know, maybe experience or techniques of them, because these crimes are hugely unusual. The likes of Robert Black, a prolific paedophile who takes it all the way to murder, is an incredibly unusual criminal. There is, thank God, a finite amount of them out there in the world. And uh, whether it's nature or nurture, we, none of us have really come to the conclusion of, of exactly whether it's either or or both. But they are really unusual crimes, aren't they, Zoe? Absolutely. And I think the the fact that certainly that the, the children were abducted from one location, driven many hundreds of miles to a different location and left there, quite often in not particularly secluded areas. These were sort of, mm. you know, by roads, just off dual carriageways in places where truck drivers and delivery drivers were known to stop. There wasn't a great deal of effort at concealment, but it's definitely, uh, it's likely at least that Black did not want to be caught. He wasn't leaving clues. He wasn't taunting police. He was living a very quiet life by all accounts in London, going to the pub, playing darts, drinking shandies. There was nothing to suggest from his landlord's perspective as well. They had a, a number of kids and there was never any reporting of of anything untoward going on there. Um, in fact, they testified at his trial on behalf of the prosecution, and that was the only time that Black was seen to to get visibly emotional. And just to go back to him briefly, like as these investigations are ongoing in the background and there are efforts to link him to other unsolved cases, he's sitting in prison. He has pleaded guilty to the abduction for which he was caught. I think en route to the police station that day, he he described it as a rush of blood to the head. He didn't really know what he had done and he didn't intend to do anything. He certainly didn't admit that he was involved in any of the other kidnaps. And um, 
but they the the items found in his van that day the restraining devices and the selection of sexual toys and aids were were saying differently but it was 1994 that the trial you're describing got underway and he was he pleaded not guilty to 10 charges now mary boyle was not one of those involved in that case or the the, the case of mary boyle no. no so susan maxwell caroline hogg sarah harper and Teresa tornhill he's convicted of and the rest there just simply isn't enough evidence to exactly yeah. so he is um ongoing in the investigations and we'll, we'll bring ourselves back to our own timeline here of the 1980s as he continues in his job um what happens during this decade? So uh, after the murder of Caroline Hogg, these four different forces are all involved in, in trying to find the perpetrator. And it's at this point in 1986 that Sarah Harper vanishes from her home in Morley, which is in Leeds. Um, she's just nipped down to the shops to get some bread for her mother. It's a really cold, wet March evening. And um, the shopkeeper reports seeing her they served to her and she left there was a strange man she said she hadn't seen him before hanging around the shop didn't buy anything and left when Sarah did now her body is recovered from the River Trent in Nottinghamshire um, not long at all afterwards and this case is another for which Robert Black was first of all accused of and then ultimately found guilty of participating in and this one is particularly significant because they had anticipated that there was a sexual motive behind the cases of Susan Maxwell and Caroline Hogg, but the post-mortem for Sarah Harper did reveal quite extensive um, sexual injuries. So they they were under the impression that whoever was committing these crimes, their behaviour was escalating, certainly. And this is partly why I've linked these cases to the earlier crimes, the unsolved crimes, because it is likely, I think, that in the late 1960s, Black is just 22. Uh, as the 70s continue, he's still sort of mid-20s, late-20s, potentially more unsure of himself and more desperate to conceal what he's doing. By 1986, he's almost practised here. This is definitely something that we see time and again in in um, in serial killers. This is uh, an escalation of behaviour over many years and a brazenness as well that definitely seemed to be the case with Sarah Harper. So he's um, he's found guilty there. Now, in 2009, he is then charged with the murder in 1981 of Jennifer Cardi, who's nine years old. And um, she'd gone to visit a friend. She said she'd be back in time for her favourite TV programme. She heads out to see the friend on her bike and um, she never comes home, essentially. So her bike's found tossed over a hedge about a mile from home and um, her body's found about 15 miles southeast of where she lived on the edge of a dual carriageway, again, where lorry drivers often stopped off. Um, mm. They were able to convict Black of that crime in 2011. Uh, he was he was charged and convicted because petrol receipts showed he was in Northern Ireland on that particular day. Um, mm. Unfortunately, any evidence that could by that point have been recovered, and obviously DNA evidence, the DNA uh, analysis was, was better then, it was destroyed in 1992 when the provisional IRA bombed the forensic lab in, in Belfast. So her all of the evidence related to Jennifer's case was destroyed. But like the others, he was he was convicted on circumstantial. And uh, what I noticed from her case, and of course that shows us a few things. Firstly, his reach into both Northern Ireland, into Ireland and across England. And I suppose the, the amount of miles he's travelling um, 
with his job. But water seems to be very much coming up in a lot of these cases, either searches of, you know, and, and no, nobody being found or as a lot of these girls, these children seem to be dumped in in water. Is that, am I right in saying that? Yes, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And at, and at the start, for a lot of these cases, it was assumed that p- potentially the, the girls had had come to some sort of accident and had drowned um, in bodies of water near to where they lived. This was particularly the case for, for Mary Boyle. Um, she lived very near some, some deep locks and these were all sort of scoured and nothing was found in them. But um, certainly his, his knowledge of what was possible in terms of scientific analysis may have been enough to, to sort of think that he he stood a greater chance of of uh, escaping detection by by leaving the bodies in 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 water yeah the mary boyle case is one i have sort of had a look at myself over the over the years and absolutely have been to the scene there where she went missing and it is just surrounded with lakes and with you know water holes it's quite boggy land and um you can imagine the scenario that there'd be lots of opportunities in the area to to dump a body. Um, so how did he behave in prison? Was he ever, and of course, that brings us to 2016, when still under investigation for certain uh, murders, he is he dies from a heart attack age 68. But how in those years in prison did he behave? Was he a model prisoner? Was he any way helpful in any of these investigations? Did he ever, um, you know, help in any way? And what did the psychologist think of him? He was never one to confess to his crimes. It was only when he was caught red-handed that he gave any indication that of his own guilt. And even then he was he was very ready to say as you as you mentioned that it was a rush of blood to the head he didn't confess to to any of his any of the crimes for which he was found guilty he didn't engage with the parents and um, and d- didn't engage in any sort of um uh teasing behavior such as you might have uh, seen in um uh the um Myra Hindley case for instance um he wasn't I don't think he was particularly a model prisoner but he was fairly quiet he suffered from a lot of um health problems fairly quickly after his um sentencing he suffered a stroke in 1996 um and as a result of that he had suffered from various heart attacks since angina dbt he'd been smoking for the entirety of his time in prison and then was diagnosed with diabetes so I don't think that he was particularly uh, mobile by the end of his life, but he certainly never confessed. The prison psychologists, um, the closest he came to them with them was discussing uh, Jeanette Tate's case. He said, I remembered seeing the case of the girl on the bike and um, that was pretty much all he said about it. He was quite candid about his early, his early experiences and his early interest in sex but he he was not forthcoming when it came to the actual cases. It seemed as though he clammed up quite a bit, even though he, he presumably trusted the prison psychologist a fair bit. They had hours and hours of interviews over many years. So unlike a lot of serial killers and most of whom, um, you know, are linked to the murders of, of adult women, he wasn't looking for the celebrity? It doesn't appear that way, no. It seems much more likely that he was acting out fantasies, um, and was very keen to continue in what he had begun 
over these years and his job would have enabled him to do that there was a period of time at which he he left the job he lost the job he crashed the car too many times crashed the van then the following year the the company took him back and it seemed as though it suited him down to the ground and in his private life was there evidence that he had any adult relationships with either adult women or men was he interested in sex with prostitutes was there anything else like that in his background it doesn't seem that he was particularly interested in sex with prostitutes he had a um a short-term girlfriend in his early 20s potentially while he was first in london um but there was nothing really in his private life to indicate what was going on outside of it as i say the 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 landlords said that he was a very quiet tenant that he kept himself to himself um, went to the pub and didn't do a great deal else. It just seemed as though his life was focused on work, which of course enabled mm. enabled all of the travelling and the the commission of crimes that that we've been discussing. Did he collect things? Was he a hoarder at all? Because you often find that uh, those with paedophilic tendencies tend to hoard things, items. The police found a, a number of um, girls' swimsuits in one of his vans. Um, the problem was that. Aside from the things that you've already mentioned, he he used a variety of different vehicles over the years. So it was very difficult. Once they'd searched his room, they found a, a collection of pornography. But it, it was it, it didn't seem as though um, there was anything that he'd kept which would conclusively link him to the cases of April or Christine or Mary, Jeanette Tate. Um, so he may well have been a trophy hunter, but the police were never able to, to discover items that linked the cases that we've been discussing. And did anybody stand to mourn Robert Black? Was he somebody that had anybody in life that loved him? He didn't seem to. He died in, as I said, in in 2016. Um, And uh, the funeral home actually was forced to close after the final service at four. This was in January. And then later on, this secret service at 5pm began the lights came back on and and I think the prison chaplain took took the um, service. Nothing was mentioned about his crimes. The service lasted six minutes and um, then he was cremated and his ashes scattered at sea. There was no one else there present, um, no family or friends to sort of claim responsibility for him or for the funeral plans. So very much trying to keep that out of the press at the time, obviously, because any public money being spent on him would have been uh, met yeah. with an outcry. <laughs> And in the aftermath of his death, do these investigations continue at all, any of these unsolved ones? I mean, I know the Mary Boyle case, you know, it's a cold case. It still remains open. Um, There is a point, surely, even though he's dead for the relatives and those left behind to get that finality, that closure and those answers to what happened to their, their children or their sisters or their loved ones. Mm. There was only uh, the case of Jeanette Tate in which um, it was just after Black's death that police did go to to John Tate, who was Jeanette's father, um, and and said we were just about to pass a second document worth of evidence to the CPS. They tried to do that several years previously but had been unsuccessful. And the only reason for that would have been a lack of evidence. Um, So uh, John Tate died knowing that the man who police were fairly certain it had murdered his daughter, had himself just died. Um, he, they, he was interviewed in 2005, 2008, they said, look, insufficient evidence. Um, and then, yeah, in 2016, it was, it was just about to be passed on. So all the families really would have left would be 
you know, the facility of the coroner's court to maybe rule if there was enough evidence that he might be linked to or responsible for the these unsolved murders. Um, really dark place to go in your work, Zoe, as a writer. Um, I mean, I'm not sure I would have the capabilities to take on board all of this in the same way you have, and you've done a fantastic job in your book, End of Innocence, piecing it all together and comprehensively telling the story. But uh, it must be a one that you'd, you're happy to finish and to, to write the final chapter of. I was, yeah, I was glad. Um, there were some sort of winter months delving through some of the evidence and reading some of the accounts that, yeah, I did uh, I did wonder a bit what I'd let myself in for here. But I think it's it's... A bit, uh, what interests me, I mean, I've always been very interested in true crime, but I think the fact that when I started digging into this case, I realised there was nothing about Robert Black and I'd barely ever heard of him. And how can that be the case with someone who's suspected of so many, so many murders and has been, you know, convicted, convicted of these four, but also about just these, these kids that went missing. Some of them received some coverage, others very much not. And, and about why some of these stories matters and others sort of seem, don't seem to. That's mm. what really attracted me to it. And I think one way or another, even though there are different times we're talking about for policing methods and for the facilities available to investigators, there's still a lot to be learned about Robert Black and how a man could get away with so much. And a lot of that maybe is about silence in the earlier years some of the, as he's learning his trade as such, um, people didn't come forward to to complain what might have been seen as a a smaller, if you can call it that, sexual assault or a lesser assault. But you can see him ramping up to murder as he's getting away with, with other crimes. Definitely. Secrecy is a big part of it. And it's also just the fact that people, that there, there weren't the facilities to link up databases Um of people that had committed these crimes, of people that that might need help, that might need attention from authorities. There there was no police sort of national database in the way that there is today, no intelligence sharing when it came to to cases that were pretty far flung, Um, no internet, obviously, CCTV. Um, The the pornography that Black had was was physical hard copies. It was very difficult to to trace him in any way. so it, it's unlikely from the conversations I've had with, with detectives that this would have been allowed to happen today. It was uh, a very much a crime of its time. Mm. And I mean, the way he, he, he died and was, you know, cremated and, and left at sea, there was nothing, there's nothing left of Robert Black. And I think probably you can at least take from it that what you have done is you've left a record of his badness, his evilness and and all the families that he touched along the way. Um, Zoe Apostolides, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Clodamini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.